cool, man. Um, I guess I'd, I'd like to get into it with, uh, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of a background about what, what you do. And we'll get into the book you wrote here and some, some stuff about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure, yeah. Um, so I am a uh, film critic, uh, film director, musician, you know, that in that way that everybody has to be everything now because there's no there's no clear career path for anyone. Um, you know, it was that when I was, when I was say that again. That hit me way too personally right there. <laughs> having, yeah. to, having to be everything, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, just a, just a reality that a lot of us had to to put up with, which is that if you wanted to kind of make inroads in any of the communities that you liked, you really had to be prepared to do absolutely anything at all times. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I haven't really been making a living as a film critic, but I've been doing it, you know, for, geez, uh, almost 10 years now, um, you know, in, in a sort of semi-professional context. Uh, I've been published in the Village Voice and Film Comments and the Los Angeles Review of Books and Nylon Magazine and all these other very wonderful esteemed publications. I have a series that runs every month on RogerEbert.com uh, called The Unloved, um, which is still kind of my my baby. It's a it's a video essay series about um, movies that, for whatever reason, kind of deserve a second look, um, a, a longer and harder. Uh, dissection than they were given upon initial release um and i've been doing that since uh since 2013 so that series is coming up on its eighth anniversary which is exciting um and uh yeah so uh you know just sort of been vaguely involved in film in many different capacities i've worked on film sets i've directed you know something like 30 of my own feature films um as well as doing video essays which are just sort of short form documentary um and uh, yeah, and now and now the book. Uh, so this is your first book, then, right? Uh, that is correct. Yes. Oh well, cool, man. Yeah. Well, you obviously have a love for the for the underdog for this, you know, going by what you do for uh, for your for your uh, column there, the uh, obscure movies that deserve a second look. A lot of music, you can say, a lot of albums deserve a second look that are overlooked, things like that. And I'm always the the nerd community in me is super into that. Uh, and yeah. that's what I like so much about your your book. I have I have it here. I just finished it not too long ago. For everybody reading, I'll I'll link it up. It's a it's a book about uh, Toby Hooper and and all he's done and a lot that he gets credit for if, in the mainstream circles anyway is Texas Chainsaw and then not directing Poltergeist, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's uh, one of the one of the rare. Uh, uh, you know, black marks on a, re on a resume, which is that you're famous for not doing something, which right. is like such a special insult. Exactly. Uh, that, that's pretty interesting. I'm sure we can get into that uh, quite a bit here. But um, I was wondering, first and foremost, what made you choose your first book to be about this guy? Well, so... Right. You know, like as with everything, you know, when you're a little younger, you have all these very vague goals, but there was never any like thing where I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to write a book. It was like anything else. It seemed like a Herculean effort that I, I, I looked up to the people who were able to get that done, even like bad writers. I'm like, well, you wrote that many words, you know what I mean? That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. And 
you know, it was kind of a vague sort of a goal for a long time. But all that to say is I didn't have much in the way of like set plans for, you know, my my output where I definitely wanted the first thing that I wrote to be anything special. It was literally that I. Um, I, I was watching The Mangler uh, um, years and years ago and. Um, you know, as with so much of that stuff, I was I was on the one hand looking for uh, fodder for the unloved, which the Mangler wound up being after Toby died in uh, 2017. I, you know, I, I, I kind of felt a special uh, need to, to kind of double down on all the effort that I was doing for him just because I, in all the obituaries and everything, everyone said the same thing, which is that they were, you know, they loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre and what happened to him afterwards. I was like, well. Yeah. What happened was everybody stopped taking him seriously. The work didn't get worse. And so seeing The Mangler for the first time and, and this movie that I had only really heard about in the context of just how terrible it was. It was one of those like legendary bad movies in the 90s sure. that wound up on all of these, you know, like jokey lists about the worst films of all time and directors having fallen off and all this stuff. And um, and so I was like watching it and just transfixed. I just like I could all I could pay attention to is the camera movements and how undiluted their purpose and momentum was from the days that he was shooting Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, honestly, it was it, it looked like he stopped shooting Texas Chainsaw and then just walked over to the Mangler set and kept working because they had exactly the same energy. They just had a little more money behind certain things, um, which is funny to say of something like the Mangler, which is shot on the cheap in South Africa and all this. But um, it was, you know, I, I, I just loved it. I fell in love right away. And I like, couldn't believe that this very, um, you know, and like this abject and strange and tortured movie um, was I, just completely written off by, you know, everybody, not just like the mainstream, but horror stuff too. I hadn't read like, you know, this was all pre the majority of online uh, horror criticism as we understand it now. There was a lot of blogs and stuff back then, but most of those guys weren't writing about the Mangler. And if they were, they didn't like it. Yeah. Because I think on its face, it's, it's, it seemed, it reads as silly. It reads like they didn't know what they were doing. You know, it's like, Oh, it's a movie about a haunted laundry press. How did they let this happen? And it's like, well, the guy who directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he didn't let anything happen. He made it happen. It was all his choice, you know? And that was the kind of perception that I was trying to fight, I guess. You know, I, I knew people who were writing books for a small press. My, my, brilliant friend Tina Hassania had made um, uh, uh, this incredible book that was part interview, part analysis of the films of Asghar Farhadi. Um, and uh, there were a couple of other people who were being published around that time. And I was like, oh, this seems like a good opportunity to kind of write some wrongs here and, and do my job as the person who wants you to think about something in a way that you haven't before, you know, to kind of take a second look at cultural artifacts. So I pitched the book. They said, yes. Then, you know, there was, uh, I've told the story a number of times, but the publisher went under, like completely just vanished. The publisher just like fled into the night. We don't know where he is <laughs> or what happened. So those books are now collector's items, but they, they went under before they were able to get to mine. So uh, I had a, an orphan book for years. I went looking for a publisher. And finally, my, my dear friend Nell Minow um, offered to publish it for me, which was super, super cool of her. Um, and uh, yeah, so now now here it is. Well, the uh, the book's great for those that uh, haven't read it or thinking about it. It's basically just like a, your analysis of all Toe Hooper's films and what they mean. And even as a uh, 
self-proclaimed horror nerd. Uh, there's a lot I didn't know, even about like what he directed and any all that it meant. You know, there if you look for meaning in his films, you'll find it. And that is um, that's why I wanted to get you on the show uh, was because I, I was thinking anybody who took the time to immerse themselves in Toby Hooper for this long to write a book to write a book about it and defend all of his quote unquote wrongs. It's probably a really interesting and cool ass dude. So that is totally, <laughs> I, I, I totally wanted to talk to you just based on that. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, that's, that's very kind. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to yeah. say. I want, just wanted to like kind of know what was that like though, like immersing yourself in all these films that had to take a long time, then especially the, the writing process of this book, which you say in the intro, you actually lost yeah. was it the whole first draft. And then you had it, to was, it. It, was, it was not quite the complete first draft. I got, I was, in, I was almost done with his 80s period when I lost the book. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was, you know, deeply frustrating so lessons were being learned all over the place um but uh yeah no i mean so it was it was it was fairly intuitive except for because at the time that i started i was working on a hard deadline and i needed to rewrite this book it was a little stressful because it meant that like for for about two months maybe even less it was just nonstop toby hooper it was every day a different movie writing about it as it's happening watching it rewatching it yeah. you know, pausing, thinking about compositions, thinking about all this stuff. And then after the first draft was done, I kind of expected, you know, when the publisher got around to it, that we would go through and, you know, kind of talk about everything, but that didn't happen. So then it was me alone with the book for many, many years. And then finally, when, okay. you know, it looked like it was going to get published, I went back and looked at everything, but also in the interim, what something really cool happened, which was that all of his TV pilots that I hadn't been able to find beforehand were A, finally accounted for on his IMDb page. When I started writing, it was incomplete. Um, there were not a lot of records for absolutely everything he had done. So like Nowhere Man and um, uh, Dark Skies and the others and all that stuff, that was like fairly spotty. And I don't think a lot of those things were on his IMDb page until much later. So there was it was a kind of a mixed blessing in a way that it took so long to publish because it meant that I could watch more of his stuff. And so, you know, a cool thing happens when you spend, you know, four years just like thinking about this book that you've written and all of the movies that he's done and making the video essay and just talking about it whenever you get a spare second is that when you find a new piece of programming that this you know guy directed it's like you know kind of like uh you know chapters from a lost holy book you're just like wow look at this you know you see so much of his personality across the camera movements and the blocking um and uh you know, the lenses that he chooses and stuff like that. Nowhere Man was probably the most instructive because it's this really canny navigation of his experimental tendencies, which was another really interesting thing. And that was another thing, too, is that, you know, the, the, the more that you watch movies released around the time that Toby Hooper would have been in school, like watching you know, the kind of vanguard of American cinema and classic horror and all this stuff and experimental films, the more you start to see the things that he was influenced by. You know, people ask him all the time about horror movies because he's a horror director. But I, I went with my friend Mackenzie Lukenville. We saw um, this amazing night of uh, uh, lesbian short experimental films and anthology film archives. 
And so in amongst Barbara Hammer was um, this short by Maya Darren called At Land. And watching it, I suddenly was like, oh my God, Maya Darren in this film is every Toby Hooper heroine. She's dressed the same. She has the same hair. She's going through this kind of like mythic, unspoken, you know, kind of uh, like traumatic birth into this world of, of, of nonplussed men. It was, it was like this light bulb going, you know, so like I started looking for more of that stuff. And the more that you look into his kind of like B-sides and deep cuts, you see how much of his work is influenced by American avant-garde cinema. Down Friday Street, which was his second, you know, not like fully second, because he made a couple of movies that we'll never see because they were for uh, like private text firms and stuff like that. But um, Down Friday Street was one of his first movies that he had like complete control over. And it is totally avant-garde, totally plotless. It's all just ambient sound effects and sirens and, and odd snatches of conversation and rock music to images that he captured of just, you know, this one street in, in Austin. And, you know, to see him aligned with someone like Stan Brackage or Ken Jacobs was like a complete revelation. Sure. And then once you're, you know, once you kind of have your, 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 your brain's pathway is kind of paved a little bit, a bit towards that, you start to see it everywhere. Um, and so movies like Spontaneous Combustion and The Mangler, they don't just look like, very purposefully deranged horror movies. They look like films that kind of peek backwards at your Curtis Harrington's and Kenneth Anger. They seem like full-on experiments. So watching the Nowhere Man pilot, where he's on the one hand doing this incredibly bone-dry, very serious conspiracy theory movie, a la The Manchurian Candidate, or Seconds, or any number of Frankenheimer Lament movies, Seven Days in May. But then when they're trying to show you from the lead character's perspective what madness looks like it's this beautifully kitschy take on something like the cabinet of dr caligari you know it, it's 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 very in line with what like 90s comedy horror was you know up to that point because this was all pre-scream or at least it was sort of concurrent um and it, it's just this outsized visual sense where like you know there's crazy lights that like draw your attention over here. And then there's a, a chair placed in a completely impossible angle where no one would ever sit there, but they're placed there to kind of unseat you. You know, it's that, it's that, that Frankenheimer deep focus thing where you're not sure where you're supposed to look because everything in the frame is, is off. And it's got this very distinctly nightmarish quality. And it just like, you know, a, a, as, as wonderful as it was to be seeing these things for the first time, to be watching like, you know, the, the, the nowhere man thing or his short about, uh, the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast. Um, it was also heartbreaking because it's like, oh, look, more proof of his genius that nobody but me will ever see. <laughs> it, yeah, so that that was, it was kind of a, you know, a double-edged sword. But, um, you know, that was the thing is that the, you know, the kind of the metaphor throughout the whole book, you know, not hopefully harped upon to the point where it becomes boring is the Orson Welles thing, because like Welles, he was forever judged against his first success. That's um, uh, a friend of mine. I worked, I worked at a bar in Queens run by a guy named Tom Davies. And Tom wrote a book about failure, about how a really easy uh, uh, writing off of somebody's you know, failures in Hollywood, which is a deeply corrupted, horrible, predatory system, is that they say they were ahead of their time. And his whole book is sort of picking apart that, you know, very... Um, very handy uh, definition of why some people are successful and some people aren't. And it's, you know, it, it's got so much more to do with 
just the unwillingness of anybody to actually notice when somebody's doing something that's interesting. Um, but anyway, his book focused a lot on Wells because Wells was the great Hollywood failure, right? Because he comes up and he's this boy genius and they can't wait to see what he does. And the first thing he does, he takes aim at, you know, people like Hearst, you know, and Hearst, you know, Kane and obviously a composite, but Hearst was fucking pissed off. And so all that stuff. And then Amberson's being, you know, edited without him being there. And, you know, it conspires to basically put him on the outs with everybody right away to the point where he's, on the phone with people in airports, you know, trying to broker deals for his next movie. And they're like, what do you want to make? And he grabs a book off the shelf and it's lady from Shanghai or whatever, the stranger or one of the two of them is I always wanted to do this. And so they say yes right away, but that's, you know, and that was the thing is that somebody then after having proven himself so capable spends the rest of his career having to prove that he still knows what he's doing and nothing has changed. The, the technique is the same. Terrence Malick goes through this too now all the time. You know, everybody, everybody looks at the news Terrence Malick movie and they're just like, you know, like, oh, it looks like he's lost it. I'm like, he's making, he's still making Badlands. It's the same fucking technique. Nothing has changed. I don't know what you're talking about, but that's, so that was, you know, and, and so getting to the, the, the point in Hooper's career where he is actively telling you that I'm watching Wells, I'm influenced by Wells, I love Wells and I sympathize with Wells and nobody fucking sees it. Part of that is because it's on a, a disreputable sci-fi uh, uh, omnibus show that was supposed to be for science fiction what Tales from the Crypt was for horror but it only lasted a season because it's not actually that good an idea <laughs> and furthermore it was for like HBO in the 90s you know that's Zemeckis and Bob Gale and those guys kind of going for the least common denominator but anyway um, it uh, you know that 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 last bit of watching all of his TV stuff that had eluded me beforehand, that his episode of Freddy's nightmares and the amazing stories episode with weird Al and Dick Sean, like, you know, it was, yeah. it was really cool to get that extra window into his life. And I was like, so primed for it because, you know, I've spent so much time thinking about him and his style and everything. Do you think he wanted to be the Hollywood success story or like the great Hollywood director was, was he just like too good of an artist, like trying to not even trying to be avant-garde. Is that just what he was? I think that he, what he wanted was a fairly common thing in Hollywood at that time. Like, okay, so here's, here's, you know, like the, 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 the counterpoint essentially to the Toby Hooper story is the, the rest of the new Hollywood guys where you you know, you think to yourself that in like 1972, so there were there were beach parties being thrown in, I don't even remember, Malibu or some goddamn thing. But it was, you know, John Milius, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and all these guys would hang out and they talk about their dreams and whatever. And the whole point was every one of those guys had done their homework. They all wanted to be, you know, Bud Schulberg or David Lean or whoever, Um and, uh, and that was it. They wanted to like slot themselves into what the existing definition of Hollywood success was. But the thing is, because they came of age at a time when the director became king in a way that he was not beforehand, you know, even your crazier, you know, more expressive uh, uh, directors were not really viewed as geniuses because Hollywood in the 30s and 40s is such a money-driven place that they're like afraid of artists. They don't want them. They have nothing to do with them. It's why Dali only ever shows up in a couple of movies because if they wanted that kind of insane personality, they would have courted it more, but they really didn't. What they wanted was for people like William Faulkner to show up, write the same shit that they like that they wanted from every other screenwriter and then go away. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what happened. It was a place that sort of spurned creativity in that way. And you were lucky to get somebody like Hitchcock or Andre de Toth who could actually do interesting things within a very tight, very Catholic framework. Um, I think that Toby Hooper, like Martin Scorsese, like Steven Spielberg, like any of these guys, I think he saw in himself the potential to simply become the studio directors that he so admired as a young film goer. I think that in the same way that Scorsese loved Alan Pressburger, William Wyler, and, you know, just obsessed over Anthony Mann, Alan Dwan, I think that Toby Hooper had exactly that same thing, where he wanted to be like Terrence Fisher, where he would go to work at the studio and he would have his camera and his dolly track and his crew and, you know, and, and, and he would just make the best work possible. Um, and the difference, I think, is that guys like Scorsese were treated like artists, you know, Spielberg, same thing, maybe a little different, but like they were treated differently. They weren't treated like any other director. They were treated like, you know, the kind of violent bolt from the blue sweet generis things that they were at the time. If you make Jaws and it makes all the money in the world, then obviously you're not going to be treated like Andre Tov. You know, you're, you're something different. You're demonstrably something different. I think that Toby Hooper never lost sight of the fact that what he really wanted was to go to work at a film studio and just sneak in all the stuff that meant something to him into the studio pictures. That's why he went to work for Canon. It wasn't necessarily that he wanted more creative freedom. It was that they would, you know, they would kind of let him do the work. Working for Spielberg was sort of a traumatic experience after the fact, but while he was doing it, he was having a blast. All the pictures on set, you know, all of the, all the reports from that stuff, when they talk about that is he was having a great time. It was two guys who had exactly the same goals which was work in studios, do great work in studios, make the movies that they loved so much as kids. Um, you know, the difference is that Spielberg became a brand and Toby Hooper didn't, you know, but that was the time for that, where even guys as unpretentious as John Carpenter became brands because it was more valuable to do so. And you retained more ability to say, fuck you to money men when the name John Carpenter is above they live. Yeah. Because then they can't mess with you. And Toby Hooper just wasn't as bold and uncompromising a person. You know, it's not that the movies weren't that way. They were. It was that he himself was not somebody like John Carpenter, who was willing to say fuck you to everybody who came to him to say, hey, this movie needs to be 10 minutes shorter or whatever. You know, but the thing is that by working for people like uh, Harry Allen Towers or, uh, you know, Golan and Globus, they didn't really ask him for those things because they weren't traditional producers. They were, you know, they had the same kind of weirdo mindset, <laughs> you know, they were just as strange as DeMille or, you know, pick your, your Hollywood power player, but they, uh, they did not have the same demands of him. And so he was able to make really rich, beautiful B movies. That's, you know, my friend Ben Sachs and I, we talked on a podcast a couple of weeks ago about how much he's like Edgar Ullman, where he's working for no money whatsoever. And yet all those movies have such personality and they really couldn't have been made by anybody else. True. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's you know if I if I if I put on my psychoanalysis hat for a minute, that is the best that I can come up with for you know his personality and his goals and his desires. Because if he had wanted to do you know more directly avant-garde things, he could have just done it in his spare time. But I think ultimately he liked working in the studio. That was why he took all the TV gigs because those crews were like ready to go. They were professionals. They were all union guys, and you know he was he just liked that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Which is strange that 
thinking about it that way, it's strange that Texas Chainsaw is his most successful, quote unquote, successful film, um, because it is by no means a mainstream horror movie at all. It's completely avant-garde, it's completely weird. The plot structure is complete, it's completely weird. It's completely unique to him. Yeah. You would think that he did continue to make movies like that after that. You would think that the rest of them would be as well received as that. Do you think? Uh, it's just a common thing that it was too good at first and he couldn't match it or it was, it's just so iconic that there was no denying it. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's as with a lot of these things, I mean, as with Kane, it's, it's, it's a number of factors. On the one hand, it's that sort of high modernist uh, approach applied to a formula which was just taking shape. You know, American horror movies in the early 70s they are, for the most part, beholden to a couple of out-of-date formulas. Um, you know, you think about the things that people would have been seeing, and they were all basically drive-in movies. Like, yeah. with, with, with notable exceptions, something like Robert Mulligan's The Other, or, you know, obviously Polanski's Rome, Rosemary's Baby, where those are movies that behave in, in, in very specific ways that make sense if you've seen other regular art house stuff. Like, Rosemary's Baby looks like, you know, a Cassavetes film because he's in it. And it's just this kind of, you know, hyperactive character study um, that happens to lead into this nightmarish, you know, cul-de-sac. Um, the other looks like any number of prestige mid-60s pastorals like Rachel, Rachel, or The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And it just so happens to be a horror film. Um, and that... You know, that was the sort of the prestige side of horror. And then on the other hand, you had like, geez, uh, Michael Winner's The Nightcomers or The Night Digger is another one. Um, or uh, Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural or Alan Rudolph's first movie. And these are all films that have this vague kind of carnivalesque feeling where you don't really know what's going on, but everything seems wrong. And there's just so many things to choose from. And all, you know, 70s, early 70s horror, like, you know, like Last House on the Left is 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 a big deal at this time. And that movie is nuts and beholden to nothing. You know, the whole point is that that movie exists to unseat you by yeah. it, in its DNA, because that's supposed to mimic a television broadcast. So you're supposed to flip the channel every couple of seconds. Right. So you go from like the Waltons to Vietnam War coverage. But the, the all that to say there isn't an established formula for American horror. The Italians have one, you know, and we get the occasional giallo brought over here, but they don't really make inroads. American giallos don't really become a thing until midway through the slasher boom. Um, and, uh, and so when Texas Chainsaw happens, it feels like such a big deal because A, it's the same year as The Exorcist, which also like completely blows people away. But again, that's a prestige thing. That is a religious drama, you know, in, in structure, and uh, and in performance and stuff like that, that just so happens to be a bone chilling tale of the supernatural. Sure. Um, and Texas Chainsaw is different from all that because it starts out like eggshells, you know, his, his featured debut where it's just hippies. Something weird is wrong. The credits are happening. You're like, what is going on here? The, the name is obviously so evocative, you know, but you don't really get what's happening or where it's going. There's no, uh, you know, immediate villain. You're you're almost like, I mean, you're more than a quarter way through the film before you see or hear Leatherface. And so it's just this thing where you're like, what am I being shown? You know, and that I think because it is so successful at rewiring, you know, what you expect at that point, you know, from a traditional horror movie, 
you know, it's not like Isle of the Dead. It's not, you know, I mean, I guess it's got a little more in common with something like Cat People because it takes so long to get to the overt horror. And when it happens, it's kind of swift like that. Val Luton invented the jump scare and Toby Hooper like really did some great things with it. Um, Salem's Lot has some of the best and that that that's a very Lutonian movie. But anyway, um, the structure is odd, as you said. And and so when suddenly this movie called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has been building towards this thing, becomes what it is. It's so uncompromising and it's so like fearsome. It's kind of like. Like, you know, you go to pet the neighbor's dog and he bites you where you expect something, but at the same time, you're terrified. You're like, wait a minute. I didn't, I, you, I should have expected this, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it, and this is, this is another thing that I wanted to like kind of correct in the book. People talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, almost like it's a found footage movie where they're like, Oh, it's so, it's so wild. And it's so crazy. And, and the, you know, the camera angles and all this stuff, it's as if the serial killers themselves made this movie. I'm like, really with the serial killers, fans of the red shoes, there are like, miles of dolly track across that movie it is such a meticulously planned thing and that ultimately is why there are all these stories in the making of the film where they're throwing up all the time because they have to be in place for very specific shots and they're doing it in the high heat in you know texas summer and if they move for even a second the shot is ruined so they can't do it so they have to hold on and they run to the window to fucking puke and you don't do that if you're just like kind of whatever. If you're just like, yeah, we'll get it. We don't get it. If you're being meticulous, then that's what happens. And that is exactly what happened. So on the one hand, I think people liked the mythic Texas Chainsaw Massacre in their imagination. I think that people saw that movie and were so fucking terrified by it that they wanted to believe that it had some special power that it was different than other movies, that it fundamentally seems to be evil at its core. And then if you go and see other movies by that guy and they are anything other than that, it's going to be disappointing. Sure. And it was for so many people, you know, for years, bad reviews, terrible reviews. And there's somebody saying in one of them that it was time for Toby Hooper to hang up his light meter or something like that, that was an actual quote from a review. And it's like, Ugh, that's so offensive. It's so, it's so anti-art, you know? It's, it's, you know, they wanted every movie to be Texas Chainsaw, but Texas Chainsaw didn't want to be Texas Chainsaw. Texas Chainsaw was supposed to be Detour or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tales of Hoffman or The Horror of Frankenstein. That was a guy doing his best impression of a studio film in the middle of a field mm-hmm. and acing it, absolutely doing the best job possible. And then, of course, you know, being thrown into that Hollywood machinery. They're like, all right, you want to do this again, but on a set for less money and with crazier actors. Yeah, right. <laughs> and because you're a kid, you say yes. You know, you're like, yeah, sure. I mean, this is what I wanted, right? I want to be a studio director and they're giving me all this money. So yeah, I'm going to go do it. And he makes Eaten Alive, which is a lot of fun, but it's not Texas Chainsaw. But he didn't want to make Texas Chainsaw because that's not even what it was. Texas Chainsaw is so special, but it is the result of incredibly calculated work done by a guy who knew exactly what he was doing. And for the rest of his career, his technique did not change. Mm. He, he, he moved his camera in exactly the same fashion. Sometimes the same compositions would show up. The Mangler has a shot following Ted Levine into the uh, coroner's office. That is exactly the same shot as following Terry McMinn into Leatherface's house. The iconic shot of that movie, which everybody seems to forget is on a fucking dolly track. <laughs> they laid down track for that shot. It's not an accident, you know, nothing in that movie is an accident. You know, the only accident is that nobody died. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, exactly. Hey, influenced by the good old Texas psychedelic rock, too. You've never heard of exactly. it. Well, that was the other thing too. I feel like I, I I was very lucky that I worked for so long at a record store because by the time I was ready to write this, I had so much of that Texas psych stuff in the back of my head. I call so cool. all that music. I just love it so much. I feel like if you don't listen, to, if you've never listened to that kind of music, you have to, and then rewatch Texas Chainsaw after you do it. It gives you a whole different meaning. That that Josephus album or Josephus or whatever with the skull on the cover is like yes. that is that to me is like the toby hooper record you know like they're redoing the stones and the beatles and all this stuff but they're doing it as this just this fucking disgusting texas psych music i love it so much yeah, it's so good man well texas chainsaw fair to say it definitely transcends genre right like it's it's well respected as just a great american work of art it's a cultural piece um yeah it's kind of like edvard monk's the scream to me you know it's their like you can read it a thousand different ways and it seems on its face like something horrific, but it's also something that you're going to see hanging in MoMA and Texas Chainsaw is also in MoMA's collection. So. Right. And very political, you know, even you can drawing parallels to the cook that's supposed to be Nixon, the whole, the whole thing, you know, so many people don't see that. Do you, did you see that the first time you saw it or is that something you grew to appreciate? And do you think all of that was super intentional on his part? Um, Yes, I, uh, um, I, so, okay, initially, my, my first exposure to Chainsaw was, I, I believe, anyway, I, I could be mistaken, but my, my, un, my, my memory of this is I saw a movie called Terror in the Isles, um, which uh, people who watch Shudder just watched that, uh, that, that new part of the documentary In Search of Darkness, and there's a clip about that. It had Nancy Allen and Donald Pleasance. And it was, I think it was just some studio owned all the rights to these movies and wanted to make something, uh, you know, on the cheap. So they shot some stuff of Donald Pleasance in the movie theater talking about, you know, what films do. It's a very silly thing, but when you're a kid and you haven't seen these movies before, it's so exciting, you know, it's yeah. like 30 trailers in 10 minutes. Um, and uh, among them was Texas Chainsaw. I was taking notes the whole time. I wanted to watch Crocodile when it was done. Not Crocodile, I'm sorry, Alligator with Robert Forrester, you know. Um, that's great though i love that yeah, I, I didn't even know that was a toe hooper movie for like ever yeah nobody does that's the thing is because he's not john carpenter nobody knows what he's done you know nobody yeah. nobody nobody knows that he you know that was his invaders from mars or any of that stuff that nobody's aware of any of the stuff that he got up to after poltergeist it's uh deeply upsetting but anyway yeah. so after watching terror in the isles i wanted to watch like all the stuff in it that like really made an impression my dad because he had seen all these things because he grew up ravenously watching movies um he was able to tell me what everything was. So I wrote it all down. We went to the, the Hollywood video on the blockbuster. Couldn't find anything, obviously, because they wouldn't, you know, like the scariest thing on the shelves there was like House with William Pat. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, you know, so then we had to drive across to the weird part of town <laughs> and go to the, the movie store, the video store there and, uh, and rent a Texas Chainsaw and uh, an alligator. And uh, alligator made so much more sense because it's just a big fucking alligator. You know, it's a, it's, it's a John sales script. So there's a little more going on, but it was, it was so, I was like, Oh yeah, I get this. Texas Chainsaw, I did not understand. It. I was like, what the fuck am I watching? I had no clue. You know, when you're, when you're young and you have no frame of reference or any of that stuff, Leatherface jumping around and all that stuff is just like great. So I didn't get it at all. Years, years later, I'm in high school and I try it again. And you know, as sometimes happens, I don't know if this ever happens to you or, you know, anyone listening in, but occasionally 
I will sit with a movie that I didn't like or or didn't really think much about. And the next time that I have to think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, that movie's great. Because in my, your brain has done some some math while you were away, you know, yeah, where yeah. You, you figure out what it's about and how important it is, you know, and uh, and you just like, oh yeah, that movie's great. And then the last, like, and your last memory of it is being like completely, you know, befuddled. Um, so that was what happened with Texas Chainsaw. Was in my years away from it, reading about it a little bit, seeing other clips of it and all this stuff, and then coming back to it. I think also the reason that I went back to it was because of the Michael Bay remake which is not a terrible film, all things considered. Right. Uh, but then watching it again and being like, oh, I see now why this made no sense to me as a child. You know, I was in like third grade or whatever when I saw Texas Chainsaw. Um, yeah, and uh, and so going back to it and, and kind of realizing what they were doing actually made a, a lot more sense. Um, and as soon as you start watching it, you know, and, and, and at, at watching it in high school is like the perfect time because you're learning about the Vietnam War. You're learning about Watergate. You're learning about every other corrupt thing that happened, you know, if you go to the right schools anyway. Um, right. I was very fortunate to go to an extremely left-leaning uh, uh, private high school run by hippies. Um, and cool. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty dope. I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot of problems when you do that because there's not government oversight. So um, a lot of your teachers get up to a lot of weird stuff. But anyway, um, <laughs> I... I was fortunate because I had a couple of teachers who actively, you know, cared about my education and all that stuff. So that was, that was super cool. So learning about, yeah, yeah. I was, I, I, you know, for all the things that are weird about that place, I have very few complaints about my education because there were teachers who gave a shit, you know? Um, that's yeah. My, uh, uh, Peter Amorati and uh, Jason Gordon were two of the teachers who like actually taught me what was going on in the world. Like, Jason taught a class called the war on drugs and we went and we visited a prison for this class you know we're in like 10th 11th grade and we go to like the gang wing at a prison and talk to real prisoners while we were there and they were and you know we're, we're there like high schoolers with their questions like hey do you think there's a racial bias in policing and they're like how much time do you have right that's education though I mean how else? yeah it was uh hugely educational and I like I'm so grateful to this day, you know, because that's the thing is that you, you learn to have this, you know, kind of lingering mistrust of any narrative when you see how easily the narrative is controlled by, you know, the, the people with the loudest voice in the room. It doesn't matter what it is. So seeing Texas Chainsaw again, as I'm learning about the dark underbelly of American history and, you know, fucking Columbus Day and every other thing, right. I, I, it suddenly occurred to me that not only was it a political text, it was uh, among the most political texts because it seems so stripped of everything. You know, you're literally just watching people behave. You know, it's a movie of just gestures and behavior. And that's the best kind of political art because you, you, you know, it, it isn't like holding you up and being like, look, you see what's going on? It's just like, no, this is what happens. When you look away, these people will kill you because it's easier. It's easier than changing their lives and their pattern of behavior and their assumptions and challenging any of the stuff that keeps them where they are and has them, you know, put food on the table or whatever. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it just suddenly was like, oh, yeah, this is a Vietnam movie. You know, these kids are, are being drafted, so to speak, and they're being killed by, you know, a, a, an insurgent army that ha have no room or space or desire to have, you know, conquerors come in, these well-to-do prosperous hippies, you know, you know, whatever their actual financial situation is, they have enough 
that they could just like take a full day trip to a cemetery to make sure that their, you know, their, their grandfather, his grave wasn't disturbed, which also speaks to this whole narrative about, uh, you know, the, 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 the things that our forefathers got up to that we now long after they're dead, we have to prop up their assumptions to make sure their body hasn't been moved. Like that's to me, the perfect metaphor for, you know, the way that history works in America is like, don't disturb grandpa's grave. You know, it doesn't matter that he was a slave owner. Just leave him there. We buried him. That's it. Sure. Sure. You know? I've never thought about that before. That's a fantastic point. And, uh, you know, so, it, it, you know, that stuff, that stuff. I, and, the, and the more you watch Toby Hubbard's movies, it's not a George Romero situation where Night of the Living Dead is is obviously it's political in the right way because George Romero was a good person. But he obviously didn't intend for that movie to be a statement on race. It was that they were casting. Dwayne Jones stepped in, you know, with that fucking Brando swagger. And they were like, yeah, you got the part. It's yours. But in so doing, the movie now has all this other meaning. But then afterwards, Romero never again made an accidentally political movie. His movies are all very purposefully political after that because he was a, a, a person with a, a, a progressive mind. You know, he actually wanted better things for the country and he saw all this very predatory stuff happening in his lifetime. Um, and then Toby Hooper was the exact same way. You watch Eggshells, you know, that's a movie about communists, literally, you know, and they don't want to get drafted, but they are, they are consumed literally by this menacing force in the basement. And, you know, that was a, a an enduring metaphor throughout his career. It was this carnivorous ground, you know, because America has this genocidal past and all this. So, you know, it, everything, everything that you watch after Poltergeist, I'm sorry, after Texas Chainsaw reinforces just how politically minded Texas Chainsaw is, you know, in, uh, eaten alive he's a veteran he's like a vet and he's his brain is broken because he didn't receive health care that's a very simple but elemental sort of concern if you're somebody who cares about other people um you know and then spontaneous combustion that's a very very anti-war anti you know atomic power thing which was you know taking the weird untold truth of hiroshima and nagasaki which is that they dropped those bombs because they wanted to they had built them and they were going to drop them and that is spontaneous combustion in a nutshell. You know, right? we don't need to do this, but we are going to do this because we want to see what it does. Because we want to know that at any moment we are a nuclear superpower. And that is, you know, it's all across this thing. The Mangler, that's a movie about literally the blood of the workers feeding the machine of capitalism. Couldn't be any fucking clearer. And it's, I think, easier for people to just be like, oh, this is a silly movie about a laundry press that's haunted. Like, no, this is actually a very, very you know, uh, rigorous text. It's, it's, it's an adaptation of the fucking communist manifesto. Like that's what it is. It's not a Stephen King adaptation. It's a Karl Marx adaptation. Absolutely. So you have the political stuff that runs through all of his work and what I personally identify with throughout all of his work, but especially chainsaws, the dysfunctional family aspect, mm -hmm. you know, um, coming up from a crazy background, you know, being, the only guy in the house, you know, you have to assume different roles like Leatherface does with his masks and like things like that. And you suddenly, as you get older, you realize this stuff. And then as you watch his other movies, you know, that's all in there too. And it's like, yeah. he has so much just subtext upon subtext. And that's why it's really important everybody that you read this book. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness had it better myself. Yeah. Um, and Basically, well, one I one I didn't know about that I could give you full credit for because I actually just watched this last night was Life Force. And that, oh, that movie, that's a gem. Well, what yep. what is your favorite 
Tobe Hooper movie that is not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's one of his more slept on works. What would you recommend to someone? That's, this comes up a lot and it's such a tough question because it, it, like, it really depends almost on like what I saw latest. Um, I, I love the Mangler so much and because it was really the impetus for the book, you know, and it was the movie that I did the essay on. I'm actually like, you know, uh, uh, well, never mind. I can't say that yet. It hasn't been announced. But anyway, um, I I really have such affection for that movie. I think it's so special and so wonderful. But at the same time, it it, it came in the middle of a streak that I love. Just this really bizarre period in his in his career where he's like, kind of going all in on these really um, arch, like. Uh, like trope dissection kind of thing. So like Night Terrors is a great fucking movie because it looks on its face like this very tone-deaf touristy horror movie, you know, where the pure white Aryan girl goes to the Middle East and, you know, is wrecked or whatever. But the movie is about that. It's about those narratives. It's not a film that falls prey to those traps. It's absolutely this overblown parody of something like you know, like the later Emmanuel movies where, you know, this beautiful woman goes to a foreign country and just has her way with whoever walks around, you know, it's, and again, that's like such an elemental American narrative is, you know, we, we deserve to be everywhere we go. And in Night Terrors, everything she does is like, oh no, you shouldn't be here. You have no business here. Your father's an archeologist. He is stealing their culture and he pays for it. You know, that's another thing that never gets brought up. It's like this anti Indiana Jones thing. And it honestly might've been (laughs) where he was thinking of that specifically where these people think that they can control the artifacts of other cultures and it's going to imbue them with this power or whatever, because they have fundamentally misread all of the texts and legends that have nothing to do with white people, because that's what we do. Um, and so I really, really love Night Terrors for that reason. That's just such a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, but also, yeah, Life Force is fucking fantastic. You know, obviously the first thing that anybody says about it is that it's like, a, you know, they, they took all three of the Hammer Quater Mask things and put them in a blender. Um, and like, what better thing? If you're a horror nerd and somebody tells you that there's a movie that's like all three Quater Mask movies, you're like, where the fuck is it? I need to watch it. <laughs> right now That's exactly <laughs> what i read your description of it i was like how did i not watch this 10 years ago where where have i been <laughs> yeah i mean again that's that's the other thing that, like you know there are so many people that i feel like would fucking love these movies but they don't watch them because nobody's fucking talking about them you know like there that was that was why that was a huge part of why i got into reading horror criticism in the first place years and years ago i had a terrible summer job i was working at my grandfather's office to answer the fucking phones or whatever and it was so much downtime because that company didn't really do anything. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I spent that whole summer reading, like I, I got as a gift for my birthday, this hard, ba- I'm sorry, no paperback bound version of a UK horror magazine where somebody for whatever reason published one edition of it as a standalone book and sold it in Barnes and Noble. I don't remember anything about it except that I read about a billion horror movies that I could not wait to track down. Tower of Evil and Tombs of the Blind Dead. Um, and uh, and I, I, like from reading that, I was like, all right, I need more of this in my life. You know, so I went online and I started searching for reviews of these things. So I read things like, gee, like, like 42nd Street Freak and um, like Brain Eater and all the B-Masters Cabal, 1,000 Misspent Hours, which I still read religiously to this day. That's still... I refresh that fucking website every goddamn day until he posts new reviews. Um, 
but that was, you know, that was the sort of the start of my, of my like completionist, you know, uh, freakdom about that stuff where I just had to watch everything. If it was weird. I had to see it. I had to see it right now, you know? So uh, that's how in college I wind up watching all the cannibal movies and men behind the sun and fucking goodbye, uncle Tom, every insane fucking thing. But it, you know, you need people to be talking about them in order to know that they exist. And so that was another thing that I wanted to do is replicate my kind of thirst for the next insane thing when I was a, a, a high schooler bored at his summer job. Like I wanted to be, I wanted to read these things, get a mental image of them, which was always fun because it never lined up with what it was. If you, if you had great writers, they could create this picture of what the movie was, which was almost as good as the movie itself when you finally watched it. Yeah. You know? And and so reading about, you know, whatever, whatever the thing was deranged or, or uh, um, Messiah of evil, when you finally saw it, it was so, it was so interestingly different from how you had conceived it. But, you know, that was, that was also part of it is if you pick this book up because you know, Texas Chainsaw, you know, Salem's Lot, you know, Poltergeist, you know, I want people to be excited about the stuff that they haven't seen, you know, Life Force and, and Invaders and Texas Chainsaw 2 and, even his masters of horror things, which are not well regarded, but I think are wonderful, um, you know, and there's so much more again, because Toby Hooper was not a confessional artist. He was not somebody who made his diary entries in the movies. He was somebody who just unloaded his obsessions in the context of, of, you know, fairly expected dramatic arcs. You had to look for him in his movies. He made it a little more challenging. He wasn't somebody who was like, Oh, this is who I am all the time. It's like, Oh no, you know, after you've seen all of the movies, just how special something like Dance of the Dead is. Um, but it doesn't, you know, again, it's not everybody wants to do the work. They really don't. It's so much easier to just sneer at something. And like, don't get me wrong, I do my fair share of that shit too. You know, you can't be a film critic and take everything seriously. There's a lot of shit you just don't like. But I, I, I always found that to be sort of a, a, a just a kind of unconscionable, considering how much of the culture we owe to Texas Chainsaw, it just struck me as, 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 I don't know, craven or something that people just were not willing to engage with Toby Hooper the same way that they do all the other important, you know, Wes Craven and John Carpenter and Sam Raimi, you know, right. so much ink over so many years talking about all those guys, George Romero, and they certainly deserve it. You know, absolutely no doubt in my mind that those guys are as great as people, you know, talk them up to. I love those, you know, Prince of Darkness and, Day of the Dead. These are some of my favorite films of all time, but I just wanted some measure of that to be extended to Toby Hooper, who to me was as good and as interesting as all those guys. Man, I think it comes down to that he was just a little too weird to be thought of in those same circles, or he was too good, you know what I mean? He was like the Texas psych rock band compared to Alice Cooper. You yeah, know? yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think you're, yeah, there's, there's, there's a level of sort of commitment to the milieu that I think allows people to kind of turn off their, you know, whatever that, that part of your critical faculties is where you think to yourself, this is a little, this is too much for me. This is, they've become lost in this as opposed to, Oh no, this is what they've been doing since they were a garage band, you know? Exactly. Well, man, thank you for your time. I really, this, this is great talk, man. I appreciate your time. You do important work, man. Keep, keep <laughs> it up, man. We'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. I, I have a, uh, I have Texas Chainsaw themed merch coming out and I'd love to hook you up with something. Sure, man. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, bro. Sick. Well, uh, thank, thank you very much, man. I don't want to eat up any more of your time. I know you're, you're busy. So thanks for doing this, man. Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. I appreciate it. Thanks for reading the book. For sure. We'll talk soon, brother. Keep it up, man. Thank you.